It's 7 p.m. We're doing it at 7 p.m. This is a little, little out of the ordinary for us. Let's see how this experiment works. Is there booze in that can? Yep. Oh, God. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. The fifth column. 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 Greetings. Welcome to another installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. I am Camille Foster. I spend my days doing things that are out there called Freethink, make videos and stuff. Uh, today, I am uh, your spirit guide, maybe, uh, to this thing we call the Fifth Column. Uh, the work that we do here is of incredible importance. It's great and profound. Uh, we uh, put our intellect on display. We help you understand the news cycle. If you don't enjoy this podcast, the defect is your own. Um, so you better enjoy it. You're kind of coming uh, out. So we're doing this uh, at night for the I know, first time. I know. Like I know. Off, we're, we're generally the should I be lightening up? I've been through. I've been through a lot. Strong. I've been through a lot today. It's a long day. It's not the listener's fault. That's true. You're right. I'm sorry. I apologize. Should we start over? Yeah. Okay, okay. No, I'm not going to start over. I'm not going to do well, that. No, no. Mother, uh, obvious. Mother. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, I'm joined by uh, by my co-conspirators, <laughs> um, Matt Welch. Michael Moynihan. Ordinarily, I hey. would say something about Hi. their affiliations, but yeah. apparently in the last week, something has transpired. So would you gentlemen tell me on what bo- the hell on, it is on, you on do? On both sides, right, Matt? Yeah. Something happened yeah. to you. I think tell me. Was, tell I me. think on the internet, there was even one like uh, media digest roundup where both of our names were included. Oh, really? Like in the, like, uh, like the, 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 the daily po- fish po- wipe. Whoop-de-doo. So I am now the, I'm no longer the editor-in-chief of Reason Magazine. <laughs> For after, shame. After eight Yay. years. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm moving to uh, my favorite title, which of course I obviously created for myself, Editor-at-Large. Yeah. Wow. I've always wanted that, and I've, now I, I've got it. I am the fat guy uh, <laughs> in the corner wobbling around. Uh, and Catherine Mangu Ward, who's been managing editor for the last five, six years, has assumed the editorship. She's the ninth editor of Reason Magazine in its yeah. storied 48-year uh, history, and we're all very, very excited about that. And I'm freed up to um, not have as many conference calls and to cover the shit out of the uh, 2016 elections and all the – both a super interesting libertarian part of it and the super interesting anti-libertarian part of it, both of which will be thrown off a bunch of uh, news all over the place, including this week here in New York. I'm going to be hanging out with um, old uh, Gary uh, Johnson, Gary uh, the Slow Shoes Johnson, uh, as he navigates through a CNN town hall uh, meeting on uh, on Wednesday, which is actually when all of you are listening to it. Well, you yeah. sound you sound pleased with that. So um, yeah, congrats, you sound congratulations, very and uh, Catherine, yeah. Catherine is very able. Very Catherine, I, it should be pointed out here. She has a very important relationship to all of you out there, you listeners. This who is Camille true. I was getting ready to say that. insulting at the top of the show. Not insulting. I, not the ones who are enjoying this. Catherine named this show. She this did. is true. She did. We we this we spent true. like what nine months not starting the show <laughs> because we yeah. didn't have a name. What were yeah. some of the names? Do you remember? Um, we had, I, we I had some like commie sounding names that were really good. Yeah, there were a few. I mean, there was uh, something I, I something I, about the like the Brooklyn, Gary Glitter Fun Hour, Brooklyn, <laughs> um, Brooklyn 
Army <laughs> Liberation Front. All the yours are terrible, Camille. What, do you remember? No, what I had some really, really those, good names. No, yeah. they were not not good at all. Really, really good names. Oh it, was like, it was like a thing called this. You know, I'm not going to let you take shots at me. <laughs> uh, we're yeah. we're going to we're going to pivot. This, Man, no, this could be a thing. Uh, that was this that could was, be a thing. Is that's this could be a, a thing? Name. Is actually a really good name for a podcast. If you were if you don't NPR. if that's you don't NPR have name. no, well, this could be a thing. Chapter two. All right. All right. One hand, also developments with you. Is that, uh, yeah, is that true. Yeah, it's true. Um, I moved over to um, to uh, Vice News and a uh, full time uh, gig uh, with a new HBO show that Vice News is producing, where I will be uh, the national correspondent uh, huh. for that show. So, okay. so uh, two the national, days, two the national it. correspondent at large. Yeah, no, then there's no at large because at large means you don't do anything, uh, <laughs> and I'm actually going to be doing things every day. So I'm I'm is exhausted. This, so uh, is, are are you yeah. guys broadcasting right now? You're doing a nightly news show. Or are you not yet. gearing up? Okay, when, gearing up. When's We're it going to um, uh, unveil? Un- unclear. And I, I will reveal that when it's uh, when the time is appropriate. Okay. Unsheath sounds filthy, uh, yeah. and it's it's worth mentioning that there may be strong language on this podcast. Yes, especially can I. I'm gonna point out that we should probably tease this at the top of the show. There oh will boy. be strong language because at some point, and you guys, we got the iPods. It's very modern. You swipe your finger over, skip the next 20 minutes, and get to the OJ because <laughs> there is a Wagner-length OJ documentary. Uh, it is a eight hours that's on ESPN, 30 for 30 series. All of us have been watching it, and mm. um, um, I think Cam- I know Camille and I have some strong views about it. Uh, you know, Matt's just probably into the whole Southern California element, the USC element. So we'll be getting to that mm. uh, soon. So just just stay tuned. Uh, some idiot wrote this will come up, and a lot of OJ. Oh but, yeah, uh, but a lot, we're probably, a lot of a lot of OJ. I mean, there, there are first. there are in fact other things happening. Uh, Brexit is a thing. Yeah, that is happening. Terminator Brexit. Uh, we're we're not going to talk about that today, though. Right. Um, at some point, there's going to be a vote. We'll talk about it after the vote. Yeah, I mean, the, the the one thing to mention is that oh, if you go. thought, no, this is a very brief mention, guys. Come on, if you <laughs> stop being so provincial, <laughs> um, if if you guys thought the the Orlando tragedy uh, couldn't be uh, politicized fast enough. Um, the slaying of Joe Cox, the uh, anti-Brexit MP uh, who was brutally uh, murdered uh, in a hideous uh, attack by somebody who seems both mentally ill and a, uh, a, a Brexit or an exit uh, campaigner. So that, like just watching that in England is an interesting way. The conversation is not about guns, despite the fact that he shot her. And it is a very, it, it, to look at the differences between how the British handle a political assassination versus how we do it, a different type of terrorist attack has been uh, rather interesting to watch. So. Yeah. So, I mean, the, re- the rest of the lineup, in addition to OJ, the trial of the century, which we obviously still haven't sorted out, hence uh, the FX series and the, uh, the 22 part, um, 500,000 hour yeah. uh, mini doc. Yeah, on on ESPN. Aside from that, uh, LeBron James wins a title, so we'll talk about that incessantly. We're not going to talk about that. The tragedy in Orlando, uh, that that narrative is settling, maybe worth revisiting. Uh, Last week, we left a few things on the table, so we'll head back there. Uh, And and apparently there are some developments with the Trump campaign that are worth discussing. Uh, I, I'm actually going to hope I hope that Matt will give us a, a teaser of what to look forward to on the uh, on the CNN debate stage as well. And then, as promised, O.J. Simpson. Yeah. So topic one 
uh, revisiting the tragedy in Orlando. Uh, as I mentioned, the narrative does appear to be settling, gentlemen. Uh, initially, we had the reports that the shooter was vid- visiting Disneyland and casing that place. There were numerous reports that he may, in fact, have been gay um, or at least had reached out to uh, various people on gay dating sites. Um, it's only been a week, but I've still seen scant evidence um, of that. Can I take a bit of credit on this one? Please go Because <laughs> I believe in last week's episode, I said that uh, this appeared uh, to me, it, didn't, it struck me that people were running with this too quickly. The New York Post had, a, had an Ellen-like cover that I think said, yup, I'm gay or something like that. <laughs> it's a reference to Time Magazine cover, if anyone remembers. But uh, there, there appears to be no evidence, according to the police, that, uh, that he was gay. I mean, as I said, if if you're on Grinder, if this uh, these these things that you know, obviously I don't use, that, that uh, <laughs> um, screenshots would probably be available pretty quickly. They haven't been. They've just been a couple of lurid rumors, and it allows people to to develop one more um, juicy advantageous narrative, and I mean advantageous to certain political views, that this person was uh, repressed and closeted, and one can extrapolate from that that, you know, the environment that that, that represses people and, and makes them feel like they should stay in the closet ultimately turns them into murderous lunatics, and of course takes the focus away from the ideology that he would not stop talking about uh, when he called 911. How do you know that? Because, I mean, it was all redacted. Not yeah, <laughs> but it was then it was unredacted within six hours. Yeah, that yeah. Loretta Lynch, um, who was awful before she was appointed as attorney general, uh, she was in New York, one of the most serial abusers of uh, of uh, confiscation of property seizures. She would you know she arrest you not uh, on a crime, but would just seize your property in order to fund their activities here at the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, really, one of the worst and. Uh, and then uh, now the attorney general, her performance on this has been just stunning. We talked, we argued, and I was on the fence sitter on this show last week talking about the controversy over President Obama saying radical Islam or not. And I was kind of half in his camp, like, you know, what what difference does it make? That kind of thing. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, Moynihan was starting to sway me with uh, with the way that, you know, it was pretty obvious that they are trying to uh, – pervert language in order to make a political point. They want to say that they're in the administration wants to wants to deny um, this as a like a, 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 a possible interpretation of Islam by just like editing Islam out of it. So uh, if we if we don't call it Islamic terrorist, then we can uh, underscore that, you know, no proper version of Islam would include this type of uh, of thing. Um, and so I was on the fence before, but now with Loretta Lynch basically saying it's it's we will edit the English language um, to deny ourselves obvious information. Uh, and then she uh, came on top of that saying, yeah, we just we're still trying to figure out uh, what why he did it. And they lost the wife. Mm. That happened today, Tuesday. They've mm. lost track of the wife. Uh, mm. I don't want to be the person who pretends to know everything about an FBI investigation. But compared to this time last week, FBI had a lot of information 
They lost the wife, and they're trying to edit out the language of an, of an ISIS well, call. Well, you, I mean, it's funny that you say that because what the FBI said, and the FBI and Justice Department released a joint statement today uh, or yesterday about the redactions in the transcript. And keep in mind, let's not let's not lose sight of the other thing. No audio tape will be released because we're not allowed. To, we can't handle it. It might inspire people. And there were multiple calls. We only have a, right. an abridged version of right. one, even with the even when it's unredacted. But when you know the the FBI, uh, they they get together today with the Justice Department, uh, and, and incidentally, by the way, the administration has thrown the Justice Department under the bus. They said after they they unredacted, they said we don't have anything to do with this. That's all them. <laughs> they literally threw them under the bus today. But the other thing they said is that like, look, this conversation was becoming too difficult because it was taking focus away from the investigation. So apparently, this is this is political language. It's fantastic. It's just yeah. obfuscatory and it means nothing. The idea that because people were having debates about this on podcasts like this one and on cable television shows. The FBI couldn't do their job. And maybe I'm just going to put this together. Maybe that's why they lost her, Matt. Maybe they can't yeah, because you know, we were talking about morning it, the show. Yeah, it is. It is really it is really, <laughs> morning really hard. Joe, really, really hard to understand your morning Joe. <laughs> like the, the rationale, butthead. the rationale for for actually admitting anything from those traits. For the transcripts, it is worth noting that we haven't seen the rest of them. Uh, last week, uh, Director Comey, when he came out, actually talked about various other things to which the killer tried to align himself during those other phone calls. Interestingly, I mean, to the to the notion that he's trying to distance himself, that by not publishing the phrase, uh, the phrases that relate to ISIS and Islam in general, uh, that we're trying to sort of disrupt this narrative that he was being inspired by a religious set of values. I, sus- I actually think it would have played to the advantage of people who want to try to disrupt that narrative to have all of the transcripts released if they do, in fact, have evidence of him uh, sort of assigning uh, credit or at least pledging fealty to this weird rogues gallery yeah, of various if he's, groups. If he's just being scattershot with, yeah. Which there seemed to, there seemed to be ISIS. some of that, at yeah, least, at least Hezbollah. in the statements they were making, but we don't know. I mean, I, I will push back here because I, I was sort of the, the principal voice, I suppose, who was not so much uh, against using the phrase radical Islam, um, but not particularly interested in whether or not it has to be used. Um, and the reason is, is really pretty straightforward. I've, I've given it a little bit more thought, but I'm, I'm generally fine with abstractions that help us make sense of a super complicated world. Like using the phrase radical Islam gives us a sense of, of what in fact is motivating or at least brings together some, some group of people who are perpetrating these attacks. Uh, but it also, I think, and there's, there's always a danger with abstractions that you can carry them a little bit too far. Um, and that it, gives you it has this quality of pronouncing something about the universe that we just isn't actually so like there is a diverse array of geopolitical cultural ethnic things that are taking place in all of the parts of the world where most of these terrorist attacks are being carried out and there is certainly a religious component to it but my principal concern and contention is that the voices who are clamoring the loudest for the use of this phrase radical Islam are oftentimes the very same voices who are doing irreparable harm 
to our ability to really, really understand the diverse and complicated factors that contribute to the rise of acts of terror like this. A lot has been written about terrorism broadly. The fact that you had sort of these four historic waves of terrorism, the anarchist terror campaigns, um, the uh, terror campaigns aimed at sort of colonial powers, terror, not terror campaigns that were aimed, uh, that were perpetrated by leftist groups, and more recently, these religious terror campaigns. But there are other kinds of terrorism that happen, and there might be something to be said for even in this case, it is not clear to me that this guy wasn't the sort of lunatic prone to violence that absent this particular influence might have found some reason or some some motivation to carry out an attack um, because we've actually seen that. Like but, the lunatic, yeah, who, shoots I, I think, up, I think the lunatic who shoots up a movie theater. And I'm not I'm not trying no, but to I think I think you're, prov- I think you're proving my point in a way when you say when you say that there are all sorts of different types of terrorism, anarchist terrorism, there's left wing terrorism, right wing terrorism. Well, I'm saying the waves, the waves of terrorism, the waves of terrorism historically. Of, of course. But right. I, I, but let me change that point slightly and just say, let's collect all of those and realize that, you know, violent Islamism, violent jihadism is a really good descriptor just in the same way. And Anarchist terrorism is. Right. Sure. We're not talking about, you know, when you say you can't wage war in a tactic, as you said yes. before, which I, I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. You can't do that. And it's the motivation for the man who killed Joe Cox. There is no squeamishness throughout Europe of saying that ideologically he's far right. Right. He has subscribed to national vanguard publications. He, um, you know, was a member of Britain First, which is a sort of basically a neo-fascist organization. Nobody has squirted this whatsoever. It is a set of ideas, much in the same way the type of religion that he subscribed to, which was a scattershot one. And I think that maybe we overplay the, you know, the differences between Hezbollah uh-huh. and ISIS. And things. Basically saying, I support all these people because they have a common pol- a foreign policy goal of defeating America. Much, I don't think he's thinking too much theologically about this right. stuff, but there is a theology behind it. And, you know, we can go back to 9-11 when this kid was in school and right. his, and his, you know, compadres in school said he celebrated, he was right. stewing in an environment where this kind of thinking, which is based in, in, in a perverted version of a religious thought exists. I mean, although so we they, do have to identify say... it as, as what it is. It doesn't mean, I mean, if people jump from, you know, Nazis to Germans, you know, what we have to still call them Nazis. Just maybe some people think all Germans are Nazis. But Do you, you know what I'm saying? And, and I, the, the, the point, let me just finish this yeah. one final thing, is that it is interesting to your point about what happens geopolitically, what happens in these parts of the world. There are other parts of the world, incidentally, where things are very, very bad. People are very, very oppressed. There's unbelievable amounts of state violence where this type of ter- terrorism just doesn't exist. So I think you're right. You do have to see what's happening and what's percolating in these areas. Is. But I think one of the things that, that's interesting is when you call people from 1939 to 1945 Nazis, but then we do the legwork of Hannah Arendt and of all these people that say the banality of evil. And we try to figure out what it was in this kind of cauldron of hatred from you know the early 20s in Germany to 1945 that created the Nazi, but we could identify the Nazi. And if somebody said Nazism, I right. could tell you generally what those ideas are. There, there's some disparate factions and elements within Nazism even, but we could identify it. And then we could say, this is what it is. 
and then we could go then forward and find. And, and I would, uh, I mean, the argument I'd make though is that under the umbrella of radical jihadism, mm-hmm. that it is far more diverse than oh, it is. Than, than sort of that umbrella. Yeah, I think this Nazis. is true, and, and I, I think this is true. And, and, I want, and yeah. I'll make I'll make one more point. Violent and, and jihadism, and I would sure, say, sure, because not all radicals are violent. I, I hear you. That's totally right. That's totally right as well. Um, but the point that I was making about these waves um, is, and I've, I've read historians who will make the same argument that even around the time of these anarchist terror campaigns, oftentimes when the media would report on this stuff, they would put everything under the same umbrella. They would amplify at least the perception of the power of these various organizations. And I can't say that I don't see that sort of thing happen when I hear a lot of the discussions about ISIS, about their influence, about the risks sure. and the dangers associated with them. We, we almost seem in some cases to paper over the fact that most of the people who die in the violence associated with this stuff um, don't live here. They're not here. And that a lot of those organizations aren't necessarily paying a great deal of attention to us because they're trying desperately to hold on to whatever influence they have in their in their proto state. I think um, there's a pivot the to water, the point of of, of, of of the state, actually. And I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And if you take, you know, the the, you know, Palmer raids, if you take the the attack on, uh, on downtown and Wall Street and I guess it was 1919, it was a wagon bomb, it was an early car bomb, basically. And you LA look at Times bombing too. LA Times bombing too. Uh, if you look at the responses to this, now you know the interesting thing is to listen to, to look at somebody like Glenn Greenwald, um, whom you know my last little riff there, I'm sure would probably have his heart exploding. <laughs> but you know, and I, I have a lot of respect for 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 Glenn's consistency on this. And if you watch him in the past uh, week about the gun issue. You know, when you're talking about, and I think this is very right, Camille, when you talk about how, they, how we frame it in, we frame it a certain way so we can respond a certain way. Everything that we've talked about after 9-11 that we said was a bad thing, rushing legislation, I mean, the, the, this legislation has died, mm-hmm. rushing legislation a week after about guns, using it as this a pre- is the, the gun legislation. Yeah, a right. pretext to get, to get your pet uh, project out. And a full-throated, every friend of mine on Facebook, everybody I grew up with, everybody I know in, in this city, everybody I work with, desperate to deny due process rights to Muslims. Uh, and that's what, would, that's what would yeah. happen in, in if we were to say the terror watch list. Look, I get that some people see this and they say, terror watch list, these people must be terrorists. Why would you want to give them a gun? But, you know, if we explain that to them, that do you want to take away their due process rights, the one of the frustrations things is they well we know he committed it's like well look we don't have time machines yeah. we're not Scott Bakula that was a reference well this to a is TV show. this is the, presen- uh, we the presentation we can't zoom through time and you know sometimes people get through and that's why we have civil rights you know sometimes people do bad things with civil rights and all the rest of us do good things with them we don't suspend them because some one person will do a bad thing with them sometimes we we do like a stream of consciousness thing here yeah and I do wonder like how people keep how well people keep up with us at home oh they love so it man. there was. <laughs> earlier this week a special session in congress oh yeah you explain that during which <laughs> sorry sorry during which there was a debate about new gun control legislation republicans and democrats went to their battle stations the legislation has thus far this week been defeated uh but the main pieces main elements of that legislation were um i guess the no fly lists essentially 
using that terror watch list, potential terrorist watch list, as a tool by which the federal government could take away your rights to purchase guns. Last week, we talked a lot about the civil liberties um, issues associated with that. Um, Also, various other things that they've been trying to do for a very, very long time, closing the quote-unquote gun show loophole, um, various other uh, limitations. None of that stuff flew. um, And and I think you're right, um, Moynihan. I mean, the notion that you sort of try to implement big pieces of legislation like this in the immediate aftermath of a tragedy seems like a bad idea. I, I wonder, Matt, I mean, we'd spent a lot of time talking about the civil li- liberties aspects of this yesterday, um, not yesterday, but last week. What we didn't sp- talk a lot about are the sort of practical limitations of legislation when it comes to gun control. I mean, there are things that gun control legislation just cannot do. Yeah, it can't uh, reverse the 2008 uh, ruling by the Supreme Court that the Second Amendment is an individual right. And I've uh, likened this for a long time. The the reaction that you see increasingly on the left and in the kind of journalistic establishment um, to moments like this, uh, it's interesting. You have the policing of prayers, like no more thoughts and prayers, man, unless you pass (laughs) this legislation that I like. Don't talk Um, to me. um, But you also see this kind of exasperated – don't you realize that this that it's a big hoax? Dahlia Lithwick, who's supposed to be a smart Supreme Court analyst, wrote a piece for Slate last week saying that the individual uh, right interpretation of the Second Amendment is a, quote, hoax yeah. perpetrated by the NRA, the greatest hoax of them all. I they're, saw that piece. And what, what people are doing there is they are proclaiming, they're demonstrating, they're announcing their own exasperated defeat. They've lost the argument, much in the same way that people who are um, pro-life or anti-abortion lost the argument with Roe versus Wade, and they can't believe they live in this fallen world. And so in moments of great stress, they come out and they, they just can't believe it. And it's, it's, they, they've stopped trying to even understand it. To say as, a, as any kind of legal analyst that the individual rights interpretation of the Second Amendment is a hoax, what, you have to do a lot of things. One thing is you have to write out of history Sanford Levinson, a great University of Texas academic who wrote a piece for the Yale Law Review, I think, in 1989 calling the embarrassed, called the Embarrassing Second Amendment. And it was embarrassing, he said, because as a good liberal who was in favor of gun control, he had realized going back and reading the literature that there was this assumption, this legal, academic, soft media assumption, Pauline Kale circle type of assumption that, of course, it, it's, uh, it's just a militia. It's not supposed to be an individual right. And this assumption, you know, when you assume you make an asset of you and me, was super soft and bad. And that's what was embarrassing about it. And that when you actually started looking at the scholarship of it, even in the dissents of – uh, D- D.C. versus Heller, whatever exactly it was called, and I'm sorry for, for botching that at all. Um, even in the dissents who objected to recognizing this, uh, re- uh, to, to the decision, recognize in various forms that it is an individual right. Absolutely. So, so people— You kind of need to amend the Constitution if you want to get rid of that. People are in, like, total denial, and so they're, they would rather exasperatedly declare— uh, how awful it is to live in a fallen world than actually have to engage people in the arguments. And one argument, and I'll stop talking in a second on this, um, that they don't engage in, and this is in the season of Black Lives Matter and criminal justice reform conversations, all this kind of stuff. We always look at sentences, mandatory minimum sentences, and we think about them in terms of drugs. And that's right, because that's part of it. Right. 
But the crime bill of 1994, there were two prongs on the things that trigger mandatory minimum sentences. And the reforms to these have two prongs that they roll back. They are drugs, but they are guns. Guns. 47% of the people who are in federal pokey on uh, gun exacerbated charges are African-American. That is a larger percentage represented than almost any other category of crime. And I know that doesn't move you, Camille, but it certainly moves Michael. <laughs> it, it bothers me that people are locked up for frivolous things. It doesn't – it's not uniquely bothersome to me uh, what, what race there are but unless the that's a motivating point, factor for locking them up. Point being that – um, you know, it's it's gun laws that cause stop and frisk. That was the that was the legal justification for it. Right. So that's what they're frisking for. That's what they're frisking. <laughs> they're that not is, looking for dime. They're not, bags. they're not looking for a little. No. The dime bags was a way to charge people. It's a way to charge people. That's not what. Yeah, exactly. And, that's and not and what they're looking them, for. And to get them to 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 spill to, the beans. Exactly. Exactly. And those are secondary. And the only the only modern moments in which the NRA and some Republicans have been in favor of gun control was when there was a scary other. Right now, there's enough scary other. So at least, you know, there was some um, a Republican support. Uh, Senator Cronin had a bill mm-hmm, and there's mm-hmm. a Collins Amendment being discussed today um, because there were scary Muslims and perhaps in the no fly list. In 1967, California, California State House. You know, look, I think that one of the things you realize in moments like this, and they're clarifying moments for one big reason. And the big reason is that everybody who talks about politics, and I suppose I'll conclude us in this too, is ultimately disingenuous. You have these moments where people just, the mask falls and they just say what they truly believe, which is we need, we've been lurching towards as smart people who want to keep their jobs in journalism and they want to keep their jobs as, you know, commentators. They don't say my goal is to repeal the second amendment. They don't say that, you know, I just, we should just destroy this. And, you know, you know, we do want to confiscate guns. The NRA argument about this and the gun rights people say they're going to come and they're going to confiscate your guns. It's going to be a registry, et cetera. I mean, I think that's a little over the top. I think that, that there are a certain number of people that I've seen in the past couple of weeks who every time a tragedy happens, the mask falls and they say, well, you know, I use all this flowery rhetoric and I know how to do it. I know how to position my argument. I know how to make my – but ultimately, I think that registry and picking up all those things would be a pretty damn good idea. Yeah. And that's ultimately – and the other thing about this that drives me crazy is the gun argument is one of those ones that people are passionate about not because it's the biggest pressing problem in the United States of America. is obviously uh-huh. a big problem with homicides. This is a problem in a lot of places in the world. It is because it is an easy argument to make in the same way it's easy to make a Bernie Sanders argument. Yes. Why shouldn't exactly we have right. free college? Well, it takes a little something to actually know the answer to that, why, yeah. why that's a bad idea. It takes nothing to say, why should we, we have free college? I talk to people that are random people that I know, friends that aren't involved in politics, and they say, we got to get rid of these guns. The NRA is, you know, by, so I want to give credit right here to my friend, um, Chris Hayes, who I think is uh, wrong about it, almost everything. But I think is a fantastically brilliant guy. I mean, I really do think Chris is a very, very smart guy. And periodically, I like guys like Chris who go off the reservation and just say what they believe. And they say, you know, Chris tweeted something the other day. I just pulled it up. And he said, I think the idea that politicians do the NRA's bidding because of the money the NRA gives them is wrong and bad analysis. Wow. You know, and that's, <laughs> that's, that's shocking. It. Like, 
Yeah, no, but it is it shocking. Is shocking. shocking. Well, you know, it is the argument Absolutely. that everybody is malleable. Nobody yes. believes a goddamn thing. And if you pay these guys enough, that's why the blood's on the hand. You go down this track yeah. and, you know, the, the the person that ultimately killed it, I mean, God, you know, al-Baghdadi is, is you know, this guy just wants, is, is a fanboy. He's not responsible for this. The guy's not responsible. Ultimately, it's the NRA. And this is what you get on the covers of uh, the Daily News. And it's And I always have to stress, I'm not a gun guy. I don't own guns. I've never owned a gun. I'm not, you know, that type of person. Really, I, I grew up in Massachusetts. I don't have a real fire in my belly to argue gun issues. I understand the terrorism watchless instinct, but then when you think about it, it's a horrible idea of d- denying people their due process rights because they've been suspected of something. And Glenn Greenwald, also very admirable on this issue, he called out Bernie Sanders today. Could Bernie Sanders tweeted this thing and he said, you know, we should never allow terrorists, potential terrorists to get to. <laughs> Wait a second. Let's rhyme that record potential back. Terrorists. Who the hell is a potential terrorist? Everyone is a potential exactly. terrorist. Exactly. Friend, our friend Thad had a pretty uh, uh, succinct Thad, Thaddeus Russell, a uh, yes. great yeah. American yeah, historian, always, which yeah. is like, uh, uh, you know, socialists used to be potential uh, terrorists, you authoritarian asshole. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah, that's actually yeah. true. Yeah. Totally true. The, I mean, people that were rounded up. In the first world, first world war. I mean, this is the thing of the yeah, fire yeah. in the crowded theater. The case that was being adjudicated was about somebody handing out anti-war literature. Yeah. In the fire in the crowded theater was to put the guy in prison. But, right. By the way, just a quick point, and it's always good to bring up at dinner parties when some asshole says this: is that fire in the crowded theater was put forward at the Supreme Court to deny someone their First Amendment rights to oppose entry into the First World War. I also period. think it's a it's a terrible and pathetic and lame argument uh, it actually is. Uh, <laughs> against uh, free speech. But we'll talk about that another day, sure. like for sure. Um, perhaps you're not persuaded by any of the things that we've said about guns. There is one thing that I was reminded of uh, by someone on Twitter. I believe his name is A.E. Saman, S-A-M-A-A-N. Maybe I'm getting the pronunciation wrong. Um, but at some point in the very few near future, perhaps people will be able to print these guns at home, guns of all sorts and kinds. Uh, I suppose that'll do a hell of a lot to diffuse uh, this debate once you can can do that. So It, it appears that Joe Cox's shooter, by the way, in the, in the UK who killed the MP was a homemade gun. Is that right? Uh, it, really? That, that early reports of wow. that it was either an old gun uh-huh. uh, way, you know, some sort of antique firearm or a homemade yeah. device. Yeah, people people who want to do bad things will find a way. The uh, Wall Street bombing, 1920, by the way, Moynihan, not yeah. 1919. Um, oh, it was a chicken. A chicken. Horse-drawn carriage. Damn it, damn it. But, but at any rate, there's other, right things, the there's other things happening. Yes, that's true. You, you, you got some <laughs> of that right. Uh, the Trump campaign is, uh, is being thrown to and fro, writhing in the waves. There are people who are gleeful to see this happen. I'm, I'm starting to see folks come out of the woodwork again and say, he can't win. He can't win. This is, it's all over. Hillary is out fundraising him. She's outperforming him in the polls, although depending on what the poll you look at, not by that much. Um, and he's fired his campaign manager, the man he stood by um, during uh, Fieldsgate. I just made that up. Is that a thing? No, and you should apologize. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm it would sorry. have been worse. Grab, grab gate. If you said Michelle, can we call gate? it grab gate? Can we call it grab gate? Can you get, get, get one hand? Can you get some like German on it? <laughs> yeah. Feel, so, so, yeah. I don't. I don't know. I don't know if you guys are, are willing to step out there. I don't want to spend too much time talking about Trump. I mean, I, I think it's it's He's all very got interesting. One million but a thing dollars coming. more in the bank than Gary Johnson. 
Yeah, well, this is the question. Let me, let me repeat that. That's not, and it sounds he's like got, a lot, but it's not much. No, he's got one million dollars <laughs> more in the bank right now for his campaign, for his campaign, for his political campaign than Gary Johnson. And does. this, and this Gary Johnson that character you mentioned, amazing. This Gary, Gary Johnson, Johnson he'd go to, he go to uh, John Mackey from Whole Foods and, and match Donald Trump's t- tomorrow if he just like spent the night there <laughs> and said, "John Whole Foods man, I know you're a libertarian. Can you give me a million? And they'd be is even. He'd be even. He'd have to go vegan and." Stuff oh, like yeah, that. Yeah, well, yeah, look, yeah. this Gary Johnson character you're discussing uh, is apparently also going to receive the presidential treatment uh, in a town hall on CNN on Thursday evening of this week. Wednesday evening of this week. Wednesday evening of this week. Tomorrow. I'm sorry, tomorrow or tomorrow today, or today depending when on you're listening, you're listening to this podcast yeah. and it, perhaps in the past. Time is amazing. <laughs> It really, really is. We should make this a yeah. physics. Uh, a By the way, when, when you break off from this and go solo and, yeah. and do your own podcast, it's going to be called Time, Time is, is amazing. amazing. Time is amazing. With Camille Foster. With Camille Foster. <laughs> I'm going to put on 52 pounds. Or this and, could uh, have been. Dye thing. my hair gray. Um, but but I, I wonder, I mean, Matt, wait you've, a second. Wait you've a written second. a little bit about these poll numbers. Hold on. Hold on. Wait, wait, I'm scratching. Wait, Add wait. 50 pounds. Dye is, it, was that a Neil deGrasse, Neil deGrasse Tyson? Tyson Are you? Yeah. Yeah, wow, I, was saying I would really? become wow. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, fifty pounds. You think? I thought 50 you were, more pounds. Than by the way, I was just saying more. I thought you weren't just black. a random number. I don't understand why would I have to be black. Neil deGrasse <laughs> Tyson right. is the most recognizable <laughs> but, but, physicist. By the way, on the planet. By the way, I just most people. I just, more people probably know who he is. Yeah, that's than, I, I, than I, that uh, guy in the chair with the computer voice. <laughs> I just walked into that. Wait, one. wait the guy in the chair with the computer voice is that Stephen Hawking? What are you doing here? <laughs> wow, what's going on? This is the butthead uh, podcast. Do you know what? Beavis. I don't even know if we're going to talk about this Trump thing, Matt. You've looked at these poll numbers. Tell me what the hell it all means. Is is this is Trump finished? Did is the firing of his campaign manager important? Should we care? And is this Gary Johnson character, who I believe is polling at somewhere around seven or eight or nine percent? Nine percent. He's been polling. Does uh, it matter? Will he make it to the debate stage? Uh, Still, the odds are against him. But it's been interesting to see that um, uh, not only has he been uh, averaging nine percent, but uh, usually when he put we put Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate, in there. Uh, Gary Johnson, it's more like five and six percent. But now both of them have been growing. If you look at the last six polls that they have included both candidates, uh, they've Jill Stein has crept up two, three, four, four. Now yeah, she's seven. Four. Seven. She's four in Monmouth. Was she seven now? She's seven in the CNN, which oh came out today. God. Yeah. What? And uh, Gary Johnson in the Where's one. Where's Roseanne Barr? Is she on that? <laughs> she's for Trump. So, you oh, know. that's right. That's right. Uh, and, and Johnson in <laughs> the same polls that include uh, her as well has been like four, five, six, six. And now he's at nine uh, in the last couple of polls. So he's making pretty good headway consistently among independents, which is the largest political bloc or self-described independents. He's been uh, in the high uh, double digits. He even outpolled Hillary Clinton among independents in one of the last uh, 10 or so polls, 23% to 22%. Uh, but he's been generally around 16, 17, 18% among independents. And among millennials, he's done really well. There is one poll uh, among 18 to 24 year olds, which is younger than, than millennials, that had him at 24% support. So on growing kind of open for business type of blocks out there, uh, Johnson is gaining headway, uh, which is really interesting. The CNN thing is. Uh, uh, is his first kind of big chance at a national stage. Um, so I'm sure they're going to be nervous. I'm going to be palling around with him tomorrow uh, before and after, and we'll see, uh, uh, hopefully watch him uh, sweat in Matt, real, Matt, real can time. I ask you a question here, quick yeah. question? Is it your sense that you see the, I just looked this up, nine, nine for Johnson, Stein, uh, 7% in CNN. 
Um, we talk about th- these third parties peeling voters off from Republicans and Democrats. Do you sense that more there are more Bernie voters that are going to lurch towards Jill Stein than there are kind of rock-ribbed fiscal conservatives or even quote-unquote national security conservatives that will peel away from Donald Trump and vote for Gary Johnson? Yes. uh, The polling on this so far has been very, very clear over the last two months. Uh, if if you say just crudely that Gary Johnson gets ten percent, and if you and if you look at the polls that measure the ask the same group of people, what would you do in a two party race, and what would you do in a, in no. a three or a four party race? Uh, consistently, and this has happened in the two polls that came out this week. Consistently, Gary Johnson knocks down Hillary Clinton's support by three points, knocks down Trump's support by three points, oh. and then knocks down the support for other by three points. And then the not going to vote by one point. That's where he's getting it. God, so, it's like the 3-3-3. Three, three, three. It's like Herman Cain. Uh, <laughs> it's the 3-3-3. Three, three, three. Uh, that's amazing. That, really. is, that is interesting, yes. Jill Stein, I would imagine, gets almost all of it from disaffected Bernie supporters, yeah. or but also from the other and the not voting categories. Is, sure. there, is there a complaint being made by people that the media here, in this case CNN, is putting their finger on the scale in trying to tip things away from Donald Trump by hosting a big event on a you know big network, a lot of people pay a lot of advertising dollars for CNN to host a town hall with Gary Johnson. I haven't seen uh, much media complaining about that. Partly, I guess because but it's kind of true, though, isn't it? Um, I don't. I'm happy for I, it. I would go. I would. I would flip it around. I mean, the fact that the Libertarian Party is going to be on all 50 ballots and uh, and that he's polling pretty well so far. Um, and we have a, a historic antipathy by voters for the two major party candidates speaks to at least including him in your polls. And to their credit, most of the polling agencies, not all of them, not Rasmussen, not Garavis or Garvis, whatever that's called. Uh, but most of the rest have been including Johnson in the polls. And rightly so, because you have uh, this group that's something like 20 percent of the electorate just doesn't want to vote for the top two candidates. So uh, they've been including him in the polls. And if you're doing that and he's getting this kind of level and this uh, obvious surge in in um, in uh, interest from the media, in Google searches and these kinds of things, it makes sense to actually to look at this. Now, we should also remember whenever we're talking about third party polls, they the, the good rule of thumb is at any given time, cut it in half. And that's what that's what the yeah, Election Day sure. support might well, look why like. Why is that? Because People at the last back a winner, because it's really hard to undo the, the two party system in your own brain. You can always be susceptible to the well, my God, you, you know, my win. my team needs to nominate the Supreme Court justice or whatever. So if you're in a close place, you will flee at the last moment to perceived quality or your own habits of mind. And that's hard to break, which is, again, why it's more interesting to see where the independents are going, where millennials going, even though millennials lean a lot left word. They're less tribalist in the way that they think. Well, I'm voting Gary Johnson for that. And I haven't voted hey, uh, look since, at that, an endorsement. since an endorsement. I haven't voted since I know, 2004. I don't know. I don't remember. Do you vote for Bush because you like never, you were high never five? You're fist pumping on the. Iraq I voted for Bush. No, no, no. I voted for Bush in 2000. I didn't vote for Bush in 2004. I would have voted for Bush in 2000, except for our friend Tucker Carlson. Talked me out of it. Carla Faye Tucker. With his Carla Faye Tucker anecdote in a great piece for Talk Magazine or George Magazine? It was either Talk. I think it was Talk. It might have been Talk. Yeah, it was um, a great piece. It was a wonderful magazine piece. Tucker is a, is a brilliant magazine writer, or was. I don't know when's the last time he's gotten in there. Um, but he had uh, he described George W. Bush, as, who was an interesting, like, pro-immigration, uh, pretty limited government uh, governor. Uh, at least on t- the campaign trail. Out of Texas. Uh, had him uh, doing an impersonation of and mocking Carla Faye Tucker, a woman who he 
uh, signed the uh, execution warrant it, it, for. It was it was uh, Aug- August August nineteen ninety nine in Talk Magazine. Yeah. And I just I, when I looked that up, I came up with a George F. Will column from August nineteen ninety nine. Say Bush's revealing interview, which I'm going to read later. Oh, interesting. That might be interesting. Probably probably worth reading. Uh, well, without further ado, <laughs> I know where the main is. event. <laughs> That's uh, the that main was, event. That was some undercard shit there. Uh, O.J. Simpson versus the people. Hmm. We already know who's going to be victorious. This uh, this ESPN documentary event on the heels of the successful FX television drama on similar themes. O.J. Made in America. Five parts, approximately eight hours long. Yeah. Uh, attempting to contextualize the O.J. Simpson trial, uh, the events surrounding it, its particular place in that time, and perhaps more importantly to the filmmaker, the exploring the history of race and race relations in America through the lens of O.J. Simpson's superstardom, uh, his uh, decline, fall, rise again, and now perpetual incarceration. Um, at its worst moments, guys, I thought that this thing was preachy and heavy-handed. I found the morality of the film, which the filmmaker seemed to be bending towards at times, which we'll get into, and I'll, I'll ex- actually explain what I hated about it, somewhat offensive um, and dubious. Um, at its best moments, uh, it was really good filmmaking, particularly documentary filmmaking, because so many documentaries are, are ugly and terrible. ESPN makes great-looking documentaries. Yeah. Um, it was cinematic, um, and when it was doing sort of the forensic stuff, like taking me into the courtroom, showing me the perspectives of both sides, that was when it was at its best. Even then it got pretty pedantic and would do really obnoxious things. The media is failing. They're not covering the stories in the right way. Cameras in the courtroom are corrupting our judicial process. Shut the crap up. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I, that that bit's right by the way, three and four. Episodes three and four together are two because it's 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 carved into five uh-huh. series. Three and four together are two remarkable pieces of filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant and compelling. I was impressed that they decided to go whole hog and show the photos mm-hmm. uh, from the crime scene, oh, which God. are gruesome and yeah. really really horrible, but necessary to to, to look at. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. That was the, those those bits. I was just gonna. To agree with you on the, that, just marvel of film. I was marveling at how good that that those two episodes were. There's a there's a uh, um, I, I I'm from Southern California. Uh, I wasn't there during that. I was in uh, Eastern Europe, and and you know you'd read. It was really interesting as a native Southern California to be away from my hometown in the 90s because all that would happen was just the, with stuff that make you think, well, I'm never moving back to that goddamn country again. My God. We had the Rodney King. We had the riots. We had yeah. earthquakes. We had fires. And then we had the OJ stuff on top of all of it. And it just – I couldn't – I mean to this day when I watch the footage – of people on the overpasses cheering, cheering OJ on, and the people by the Bundy uh, Drive house uh, just going crazy for OJ. You just you feel like civilization is coming. The the wheels are coming off. We don't know where it's going from now on. It must be breaking down. But in fact, I think it was a turning point of going somewhere better, and that there's an argument to be made about the whole case. And I don't know because I still haven't seen uh, the episode five yet. I don't know if the filmmaker has the courage of his convictions, but where the OJ trial, farcical as it was, just wrongly 
executed wrongly, uh, possibly wrongly decided, and we'll argue about that maybe, but... Uh, <laughs> there's, there's no argument. Um, <laughs> he totally killed the yeah, crap out yeah, of him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and him. Yeah. But, yeah, she told, he totally killed the crap out of him, but, like, uh, can you can you prove it in a court of law? But that it was the... It was the... Uh, that was, like, the, 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 the sin, or that was the... That was the, the the punishment that Los Angeles had to go through to get to a better place, hmm. and that the what, it was a it's a classic tragedy in which absolutely everybody, for the most part, in the documentary, with the exception of the killer, uh, acted in motivations in a way that makes sense to you. Like you can see where they were coming from. You could see Gil Garcetti saying, you know, we really had to try this downtown to show that we weren't going to do Rodney King Part 2 and have the trial in CB Valley. Although, you, although they did, in fact, do Rodney King Part 2, um, and there's some question as to whether or not those cops got a, a fair trial that time look, as well. But. Here's the thing. I mean, there's... I disagree with you on this on, on, on many different ways. I don't see this... <laughs> I don't see this as a big story. I think the, I think the problem with Rodney King and the OJ case and coming so close to the riots, all coming close together, is that people always want to make big stories and big... I, I don't think there is a big story here. And I think that, and I, I think we give... When you put it into a big narrative, you end up vindicating the beha- the really bad behavior of a lot of people on a lot of different sides. And, like, let's take, for instance, let's take um, the Rodney King verdict. The man who's looked at this more than anybody is Lou Cannon, the Washington Post uh, a correspondent who covered the case in the trial. And he came, he, about two, three years later, he came out with a book called Official Negligence. And he not only said that um, the jury was actually correct in their decision about, about uh, the LAPD officers, and he makes a pretty compelling case as to why this is true, but the ultimate piling on, OJ gets the piling on with the, uh, with the, the last, last sentence, and, and apparently yeah. this is in, in the fifth episode and why he's in prison now. They get this too, and civil trials fired, et cetera, et cetera. I can't really support what Cannon says in, in whole cloth. He, cause you know, I just, I mean, it is clearly uh, excessive. And, and, but the thing that they do point out and actually comes up in the OJ documentary is that the idea that these cops are racist is, I mean, Mark Furman, there's an enormous amount of evidence. Uh, you know, these cops, it's not th- clear that that was the case, that these guys were doing this and they were racially motivated. There were two other people in the car. They were not touched. They were brought into custody, et cetera. There's a lot of stuff here. The video is longer than what we saw. He's shot with thing. He pulls it out of his chest, keeps charging them, et cetera. The thing about this that I find interesting is that they are so desperate in this documentary, and I'm, I'm cannot wait. I've been waiting for almost a week now to hear what Camille says about the race aspects of this. But they make so much hay in contextualizing how it felt to be in L.A. at the time, right. how it felt to be black in L.A., what it was like to be O.J. in L.A., what the, the celebrity scene was like in O.J. In, in L.A., et cetera. What they didn't actually make, make an effort to, to, to show, and I am not somebody, I'm not Radley Balco on this, and, but I'm, I'm also not, not a, you know, apologist. What was it like to be an LAPD officer in that time of ultraviolence in certain neighborhoods? 70, I looked this up, 77, I don't have a number in front of me, cops were killed in the line of duty from, I think, 84, 85 to 94, 95, something around that. But it was an astonishing number. For the last 20 years in New York City, it's something about 40 cops. Last 20 years, this was a 10-year period, an incredibly violent thing. The LAPD did so many things during that time that were inexcusable. 
were they racially motivated? I don't know. They're in, they're in communities where, you know, most of the people many are. Many of them were. Many of them were. No, there, there, there is no doubt about it. That's a, the, the, the thing about this is that the, the Furman as character is someone who is immediately recognizable to anyone who's dealt with, I think, uh, anyone who lived in L.A., or Southern California at the time. The white guy who says, isn't it great when we get the nigger in because we can go kick his ass over here. Good for you, Matt. I am. I'm proud of you. Thank you. I'm proud of you. That's great. Um, no, this that, as I've mentioned before on this show, I had a guy on my block who was the guy who became a cop. He told me that exact same story. Yeah. Listening, to the, listening to the tapes of Furman talking to the screenwriter. And yeah, he was, I'm sure, embellishing in his own way. He, he, he was say, definitely embellishing. By the way, yeah. but, yeah. you know, I just want to point out here, and it's a little factual point that the, for eight and a half hours maybe I should have pointed this out, is that the LAPD did an investigation into the claims of breaking bones and beating up suspects and torturing them. They went back, they found the actual specific incidences, and he was making it up. You, yeah. you could have waited for that one, Moynihan. You didn't uh, have to cut him off. But, God. but it's, go it's important! Go ahead, Matt. <laughs> but sorry for that. that that it's a conversation. <laughs> that speech that he gave, that, that line, embellished as it was, I heard almost word for word from a guy on my block saying the same thing. And people, I mean, if you look at the, at the numbers of uh, trust that black people in Southern California had in the LAPD um, in – 1995 compared to 2015 by or 2013 was the last time I looked at this uh, yeah. in the anniversary of the riots. By 2012-2013, trust had gone up to 68%. 16% of blacks thought that OJ was uh, guilty in 1995. Now that number is 57%. Like the perception of the root problem of racism, the LAPD and all that kind of stuff has totally changed in the 20 years after all the tumult of the 1990s. But why? For a lot of different reasons. Better policing, but also an enormous and precipitous decrease in crime, which means that the police are less a presence in the neighborhood. Both. Both. uh, Definitely. And there was a a succession of reform-minded police chiefs, two of whom were black and were very conscious about the racial composition of police forces, which is something that Camille and I disagree with. Um, before, there, I think the LAPD was 83% white or something like now. It's 30-something percent white. But also in leadership positions and just yeah. the, the type of people, there, there was a felt feeling of an occupying army. And there needed to be an occupying army on some level in some neighborhoods uh, for sure. But at the same time, the... That whole dysfunction, that rot, that dysfunction, and everyone is shell-shocked. That's what struck me about the documentary. Marsha Clark, my God, the uh, Chris Darden character. I wonder what, where he, the hell he is these days. Yeah. He's like about the only person who's, uh, who didn't uh, take part. But everyone was sort of reacting to you know, the previous 30 or 40 years of history yeah. and, and making decisions. And a lot of them were bad decisions based on it. But, uh, but you can see the kind of rebound of or, or, or the kind of reaction shot of a damaged civic culture that that, that moment uh, encapsulated. Me, I, I, just, me, I find that compelling. Let me push back briefly on this. And the, the thing is, is that, that I understand this argument, and it's one that's made in this documentary, and it's one that's commonly made, and it's the perception argument, the perception of an occupying army, the perception of this, the perception of that. Right. I understand that, that that is the perception that kind of catches fire within certain communities and neighborhoods, and doesn't matter where they are, what, what the perception is. This, you know, communities can have these ideas, and as you say, there's data to support this 16%, you know, don't trust the police or think OJ's innocent the rest mm-hmm. of it 16 percent uh um thinking oj's innocent to me is uh, like if there's a community that thinks 16 percent uh thinks the holocaust actually happened i don't believe in forgiving it 
here's the that's the difference between you and me, I think, because I think that, that there is a perception of this. You know, white communities have wrong perceptions about black communities and we don't stand for it if it's wrong. We say if 16 percent you know, of white Americans think X, which is terribly discriminatory and stereotypical about black communities, we will push back on, on it. it hard for yeah. some reason. We infantilize the people in these na- in, in, in the neighborhoods that were cheering. And by the way, it, it, it's worth noting, too, that when they drive up to Rockingham, the people cheering are white. Look back in that thing. They're all bros from Brentwood. And there is a collective catharsis mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for yeah. whatever reason. Just people like the spectacle of it. Yeah. But on, well, on probably the, celebrity had a lot to do with celebrity it. Celebrity had a lot to do with it. Yeah. But, you know, the thing that for me is that I to, to, to Camille is that I'm watching this and I send Camille a text. You got to be this is driving me crazy. Because the idea is that O.J. is not really black. It's not that O.J. says I'm not black. I'm O.J., which he said to Playboy magazine, which has been, you know, repeated a million times. It was repeated a, a, about a hundred times in this. In this uh, yeah, but and I think he probably only said it once. I, I don't think, think O.J. Right. was saying it constantly. But so O.J. says, um, I'm, not, I'm not black. I'm O.J. I transcend race, which, by the way, is not a weird position. At the time. This, is, this was supposed to be something that people would aspire to, transcending. That was a liberal value to right. transcend race at the time. And so he transcends race. And then in this documentary, this is looked at as it is, it OJ's is original sin. Original sin. His yes. first failing. What did you think in that first second episodes where we're, they're talking about OJ as the white guy? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, not it's it's less the white guy. He's the white guy's black man. He's the safe, it's, it's the right. safe black man. And, right. and and it really does seem to me that the narrative, the narrative arc of this entire documentary series is you begin with this incredible, remarkable man, OJ Simpson, who comes from, you know, trip to typical black neighborhood who's poor and he was having a difficult time and somewhere along the way he loses his way and he forgets his blackness and he forgets his obligation to his people and while he's a rising collegiate athlete capturing the attention and imagination of the american people he forgets to be black he refuses to be black he's asked to participate in boycotts and he won't do it he won't take take positions on various issues and come out and support the the more vocal elements of the civil rights uh, of the civil rights uh, movement um, and 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 do black power salutes he's not doing any of that and he says things like I'm not that black I'm OJ he is doing his own thing um, that is the cardinal sin and somewhere along the way it's it's almost as if he gets worse and worse and worse after that, we keep returning to this theme of OJ not really being OJ and he doesn't find his blackness again. Until. He doesn't redeem himself <laughs> until this murder trial yeah. when his blackness is what gets him off. And I think that at this point is pretty obvious. The jurors who are featured in the documentary admitted at this, yeah. at this point um, that, yeah, I mean, most of us, the overwhelming majority of us voted not guilty primarily because this was us getting back um, at sort of the broader L.A. community and and perhaps the nation. There are other people who say the nation. The 400 years, we were enslaved. We were mistreated. How many white men got away with doing horrible things over that 400-year period to us? The poison here is the despicable notion um, that you must do something on behalf of this other group of people, your, your people. You must identify as black. It is the great lie. Race is the great lie in America. It's not just our our fatal flaw, our congenital defect. It is the great lie that it ought to matter. 
and doubling down on it and saying that it has to be everything. It has to be who you are. Someone in the very early parts of the documentary suggests that that OJ forgot who he was because he refused to be black. That's heinous. Yeah, that's heinous. That, that's not a redemption of O.J. for anything. Uh, young O.J. is, is uh, as I mentioned to you over text, he's kind of like the baby Jesus. You can't not <laughs> cheer for young O.J. when he's running I think, a billion yards. It's I think amazing. I might have pushed back, but the one other <laughs> thing to that exact point. Really, really, really good running. It was I, really good. And I, I noted this down because you said, that, I'll give you the second version of that. There's too many versions of that in the documentary of saying that, uh, that uh, he turned his back on his people. And so. uh-huh. the, um, I don't know if it was one of the jurors. I didn't identify the person in my little screen scrawled notes from in bed that he uh somebody pointed out um and this is this i think clarifies everything in the documentary is that when he starts dating nicole the woman says or a friend says well you know he didn't date somebody from his own community right oj simpson is a rich football player his <laughs> own community is brentwood if you don't think his own community is brentwood you're a racist because <laughs> you can that his community is rich people and hot women blonde or, or black doesn't make a difference he hot rich women that's what you do He could have gone to baldwin hills or manhattan beach you know he could have he could have done all those things but uh, you know you know it's fine i i go for I, it um, I isn't Marcus kind of a sellout too then because he screwed Nicole. <laughs> so yeah. continue. I, 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 I didn't realize that. That uh, makes it all different. Um, uh, no, it, it strikes me that uh, Camille, you make uh, documentary movies in your um, in your uh, mo- moonlighting uh, role. I help. Um, that this with just a little bit of tweaking, this could have been made with your weird view in mind too, uh-huh. because this, I read a lot of it as a uh, paradox more than judging. Um, but I, I didn't watch the first episode. So like yeah. I, I missed, you, you I, got, missed that's I missed the context. That's the real context. That's, yeah. that's the front yeah. loading of it. But because in the, in the trial portions of it, they really just play it off as a, as a paradox. This uh-huh. guy who didn't play the race card in any way, shape, or form, and was just sort of this an American transcendent other person, more like a Tiger Woods figure than anything else, um, suddenly had to play it like that. And isn't that uh, an irony? And it is an irony. I mean, the the thing that gets – I loved the uh, the uh, defense uh, black lawyer guy uh, who's hilarious. God, God, he's the worst. <laughs> he's so great. He's the worst. Uh, but when not, they, not Johnny Cochran. His, no, no, little, yes. little Johnny Cochran, <laughs> his young assistant. Little Johnny. His young uh, apprentice. When they change the – Photos on OJ's wall, oh, yeah. yeah, and like got the uh, got the 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 the, the Rockwell uh, uh, painting out of Johnny Cochran's office when they found black friends that OJ never knew that he had, yeah. and like stuck them up on the wall. And Lance Ito's totally screwing up, and like why are they even touring? Yeah. Says, There's absolutely no reason except to see the <laughs> and, killing. Player. And he said, and he says the most amazing thing of like a person who thinks about race all the time, and like, and he says, which if you. If it was like a white lawyer, he could never say this. He's like, if it was a Mexican's house, it'd be a pinata, and I'd be wearing a sombrero. And it's like, oh, okay, all right, now that's pretty amazing. So we're so we're great. running we're running a little little thin on time, uh, and I understand people. Some of you have asked for fifty two hour podcasts. We can't really do that. Uh, we have we have other jobs, and you don't pay enough for this podcast. Consider sending money wow. to to Camille Foster at. I'm not going to give you my address. That'd be weird. I mean, it's obviously um, at Gmail. <laughs> but, but the uh, the Rodney King uh, and Latasha Harlan's um, aspects of the of the show, um, it is interesting that in an eight hour documentary filled with a lot of repetition uh, and a hell of a lot of preaching and a number of weird asides, that he couldn't spare a moment for nuance when discussing. 
those two cases, which were in fact pivotal in, in touching off the touching off the uh, L.A. riots. But there is some nuance there in both of those cases. And with the benefit of hindsight, we actually have that. There is it's it's almost like we've we've actually drawn allusion to it several times, and I'm I'm just gonna reinforce it here because I I love it so much, and it's kind of a core piece of my own philosophy. There is something about doing history, um, and the way in which we look back and we sort of find these things and we draw these these straight lines, um, and and sort of build a story and reinforce it over and over again because we say, aha, I found this thing that makes sense. Uh, the truth is, it is complicated, and I I, I could probably say this a little. I don't know that this is what Michael was saying, but earlier when you talked about the distrust in the black community for the police, there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, I do think that an important part of that reason is that an attribute of black culture in America, and I don't care if someone doesn't like that I say this, but I think it's true, um, is that there is a pervasive and persistent paranoia when it comes to various things that happen and finding racism as an explanation. And there were people who were able to look beyond the weight of the DNA evidence, for example, and find the conspiracy and say, oh, yeah, well, that that must explain it. Oh, yeah, it's the chemtrails. It's the government inventing AIDS. Um, It is all sorts of insane, crazy things that are not at all true, but are but that are widely believed amongst a community of people who have historically been disadvantaged and have, as James Baldwin points out in The Fire Next Time, the part that no one pays any attention to, reached the point where they are unable to discern between real and imagined bad things that are happening to them. Um, and I, I think that that is, is a really, really pernicious place to be. And I, I think that that is what infects the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and unfortunately makes it the sort of thing that is unlikely to be um, effectual and impactful um, in the way that it ought to be, uh, I mean, which, I, is to, which is to, to stop people from getting assaulted by the police needlessly. I, I hear you on all that. And also, you know, they strangled and murdered a black kid with the perfect record from uh, Long Beach State, uh, you know, five miles from my house growing up. 10 years before the sure. OJ trial and every heinous things happen. No doubt. about yeah, it. And, and you know, every, by the way, the argument that that was made by the LAPD during the Rodney King beating, and this is completely forgotten about, is that if the chokehold hadn't been banned, they wouldn't have done this. This was literally the argument that was made by them. I think it's it's absolute hogwash. But that the argument they used that murder and that was a murder. They killed him, killed the kid yeah. with by that if they had not, um, if they allowed them to aggressively police the way they did they wouldn't have to beat the tar out of Rodney King. And that's it's an amazing I mean I really 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 recommend people get Luke Cannon's book. I mean the the uh uh it's little Latasha it's not on, it's not on uh, Kindle. It's not on Kindle. You can get it for a penny or something. But the the Latasha Hawkins or Harlan's, Harlan's uh, uh murder is dealt with in great detail and one of the things that's interesting about it because it does in some ways precipitate the LA riots is one of the one of the big sparks is looks at this woman who is focused in on the OJ documentary a very close up of this judge who basically gave the woman probation. Um, And he explains the thinking behind it. And in a way... It reminded me of how we treat how we treated the uh, the Brock whatever his name rape case in Stanford. Mm-hmm. Which I mean, if you had if if I had my druthers, the guy would be in prison for the rest of his life. But 
at the same time is that, you know, I do know a lot of people that are saying, well, I know how to judge uh, a rape case and I know how to adjudicate these things. And I do know what he takes into consideration. and He's wrong. I think just my instinct, I would like people to admit that the instinct is that the judge is wrong. I, I agree with them. I absolutely agree with them. But these recall petitions, let's do this. Let's do, you know, in the same thing that happens uh, in the Harlan's case is that uh, Luke Cannon says, well, look, here is why this thing was was settled the way it was agree with it or disagree with it, but it definitely, to the point about conspiracy, it definitely was not a conspiracy. It was someone looking at a Basically, I mean, to, to, to sum it up, a frail old Korean woman who sang at her church and hated guns and never touched one before, never fired one before. And, there, and, and she was in a full panic. And that's wrong. And she sh- I think she should have gone jail for yeah, it. Yeah, there's some interesting nuance there, too. But but this you mentioned the Vanderbilt uh, Stanford cases, which have been contrast endlessly on Facebook. This may be the only time we discuss it so quickly. It is worth noting that the co-defendant in that Vanderbilt case who no one ever talks about. Mm. It's a white dude. It's a black dude and a white dude. The Con- circumstances convicted. were different. The, the circumstances, the jurisdictions, the, the courts, the, the I'm sorry, the judges the are different. The charges are different. Um, it is ridiculous in the extreme to compare these two cases and to pretend as if it is a textbook example of the racism that is endemic in America. If you have shared that, if you continue to share it, um, I mean, you are essentially demonstrating precisely the sort of sort of paranoid rush to judgment um, that I personally have warned against uh, a number of times. Uh, and and I, I, I don't know. I think you should stop it. He's you should issue a retraction. He's a lot more threatening at night. That's what I'm getting. Here. That oh. is racist. Yeah. Oh, wow. I thought you were being racist, too. <laughs> no, I, I am. Wow. You know what? I've been in the gym. I'm, I mean, I'm really jacked up, hopped up on Adderall, coffee, <laughs> Red Bull. It's the end of the day. I've taken both of my short acting doses. Um, oh, God. We, we are way out of time. Yeah, um, and you're got, way over admitting things. Get into the, well, yeah, because Adderall and meth are the same drug. Um, do you guys have any parting shots? We we sort of did some some idiot. I want this. I want to somebody wrote this. But go for it, Andrew Cuomo, governor of the yeah. shitty state of New York. Um, <laughs> he tw- Only because of him. Follow him on Twitter because it is just like uh, putting your mouth on a fire hose of bland, flaccid statism. That is not oh, where I thought dear. you were going. Yeah, whatever. Uh, he had. A tweet. Oh wait, that was a penis joke. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, uh, I, okay. He had a tweet last week that just drove me nuts. Uh, maybe it says more about me. Um, it's ribbon cutting ceremony at LaGuardia, which uh, is a toilet of an airport. Uh, and he's sitting there with Joe Biden saying this airport, yeah, they're, they're you know going to do some renovations. Mm-hmm. This airport is really the front door to New York and it's going to be a whole new airport. Hashtag built to lead. <laughs> Hashtag LGA. I, if you're not from New York and you're listening to this, if you haven't traveled to the great airports that the Port Authority runs, or if you haven't tried to sit in a cab and like read while it's going over these eight foot potholes that haven't been repaved since the fucking Buckley administration that never was in the <laughs> 1960s, this city is a fucking embarrassing shithole wow. of of infrastructure that doesn't work built to lead is an admission of absolute abject failure of doing a basic anything of government. And the idea that the port authority is going to suddenly pull the two most embarrassing airports, this side of LAX out of anywhere except their own ass is uh, ridiculous. We need cameras in here. Matt, Matt Welch has turned beat red. Oh my God. And it's wonderful. Double explicit Um, lyrics (laughs) this week. We have to get the hell out of here. 
Three live crew record. Um, okay. but, uh, but this was fun. Um, we'll be back next week. Uh, we're going to have to figure out what we're going to do. I'm going on vacation, dude. Uh, and I, I know he's um, traveling and you're uh, probably traveling. We'll uh, figure it out. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. But we'll be back show next meeting. week. Show meeting? Yeah. Show meeting. Yeah. Show okay. meeting. Let's All have right. a show meeting. Later. Bye. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horror.